electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Here's what's ahead on this Monday. We're just 50 days away now from the biggest wild card for the markets going forward, the election. We'll talk about what stocks to own for a sweep, for a split, for also a prolonged period of uncertainty. Plus, there's no doubt it's been a turbulent year for the airlines, but lately, investors appear more bullish. Names like JetBlue are up 20% in the past few months. We're going to speak with the CEO about their path to recovery. They're adding routes, in fact. We're definitely going to talk about that. And up in arms over NVIDIA's mega deal, and Oracle wins the TikTok battle. Or does it? That's all ahead of us today. But we start with the markets, and Dom Chu is here with those numbers. How about some of that election uncertainty playing out with the bullish market today? We're still off the record highs. The Dow Industrials currently have just about 5% below those record high levels. The S&P, similar percentage amounts there. The Nasdaq, though, just about 8%. We know technology's driven a lot of that sell-off. So, again, big moves here. We're going to put check marks next to all of these. And the Nasdaq really outperforming today, up by over 2% at this stage. One of the big drivers so far is M&A activity, specifically, yes, in technology, but also in biotechnology and big pharma. Gilead buying Immunomedics, that big deal, $21 billion, is helping to propel the entire industry for biotech up. This ETF tracks that, and it's up about 6% right now. This particular ETF, from the trough during the COVID pandemic up to the highs that we saw most recently, up over 90% during that span. And we're just about off 8% from there. So keep an eye on biotech, M&A driving a lot of that action. And if you're looking for some more positivity in today's market, check out what's happening with these stocks. Nike, checkmark. Sherwin-Williams, checkmark. Norfolk Southern, checkmark. And Expeditors International, checkmark. Viewers of this show know because they've heard these names. These are the record highs that have been hit in the S&P 500 today. Yes, Kelly, we're still below it on an index level, but some of these stocks like Nike, Sherwin, Norfolk, and Expeditors doing pretty well in today's market. I'll send things back over to you. Pretty diverse group there as well, Dom. Thank you, sir. Well, as I mentioned, 50 days stand between now and the presidential election. And a full slate of consequential issues hang in the balance. Let's start with COVID-19. CNBC polling shows voters think Democratic nominee Joe Biden with his seven-point plan is better equipped to bring us out of the pandemic than President Trump. But when it comes to COVID's impact on the economy, 51% of swing state voters feel Trump and the Republicans will do a better job. Let's turn to health care, another area with major political impact. Trump will continue to focus on drug pricing and target the Affordable Care Act. Biden, on the other hand, will push to expand the ACA and implement aggressive drug pricing measures. Another issue the candidates are diametrically opposed on is energy. Under President Trump, the sector would largely continue business as usual whereas Biden would allocate more support to the renewable and clean energy industry. When it comes to manufacturing and trade, both candidates, well, here they're strikingly similar. Trump and Biden both want to repatriate American jobs. Their trade policies, though, could look different. And the question remains, which candidate would be tougher on China? And of course, top of mind for Wall Street is each candidate's tax policy. The Trump campaign is calling for cuts to payroll and capital gains taxes. Trump might even extend or expand corporate tax cuts. While Biden is proposing an increase to that rate. And on that very note, let's get to Elon Moy in Washington. She's got more on each candidate's tax proposals for us. Elon? 
Well, Kelly, President Trump wants to keep the current tax cuts in place and make them permanent. But Biden says that the wealthy and big businesses need to pay their fair share. For individuals, that means moving the top rate back up to 39.6 percent, taxing capital gains as ordinary income if you make more than a million dollars, eliminating stepped-up basis, and applying Social Security taxes to income over $400,000. He's also proposing big changes to the corporate side of the code as well, starting with raising the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. He said last week that he'd start pushing for that priority on day one. He'd also tack on an additional 10% surtax to that rate as an offshoring penalty for companies that produce goods and services overseas and then sell them back into the U.S., and he'd establish a minimum tax of 21% on foreign profits. Now, today, the Penn Wharton budget model has projected that Biden's tax plan would raise $3.4 trillion over a decade, but that his spending plan would cost $5.4 trillion over the decade. Kelly, President Trump has not released a detailed tax plan, but as you mentioned, he has promised to cut taxes and increase incentives for manufacturing in America. Back All right, to you. Elon, stay right there. Let's dive a little deeper into the issues that will impact your money in the markets. Joining us now is Dan Clifton. He's head of policy research at Strategus Research Partners. Dan, it's good to have you. And first, you kind of agree with the characterization that we've laid out about how the candidates would affect the economy on major points. And what would be the impact on the, let's start with the star, stock market right away, um, from the well, you know what? Even before I ask you about that, I should ask you, who does your polling have winning right now? And I know you're not using conventional polls anymore. That's right. I mean, we, we do look at conventional polls and there's going to be an error associated with them. But we tend to look at stock market indicators like the Strategus Trump and Biden portfolios. Those portfolios are giving about a 45 percent chance for Trump, 55 percent chance for Biden. The S&P 500 is a great predictor in the 90 days before the election. That's giving it a, a slight edge to Biden. And so I would argue that Biden's the favorite. The big change over the last three weeks is the president has started to close the gap. And if that trajectory continues, this race is probably going to be very competitive. I think to your point on the CNBC swing state polls shows that there's a very strong correlation between the intensity of COVID and the anxiety of swing state voters. Hmm. So if COVID remains restrained, the president's going to be competitive. If, uh, if COVID flares back up, I think it's going to be tough for the president to win in that environment. One follow-up when you said that the S&P 500 uh, is a good predictor, and right now it's giving a slight edge to Biden. Based on yeah. what? Yeah, so if stocks are higher in the three-month period before the election, uh, the incumbent party has won generally. And if the S&P is lower in that three-month period, the opposition party has won. Uh, I think today that gain may have been reversed. But this has been true for every election since 1984, and it's been true 87% of the time since 1928. It's a very good predictor. And I would also say that the currency, the dollar, has been a great predictor. It's predicted seven of the eight, uh, seven of the last eight presidential elections with the dollar being weaker favoring the incumbent party. The dollar is slightly weaker in that three-month period. Okay, interesting. So let's go into some of the specifics here. And yeah. uh, you know, there, we can start with the industries or we can start with the scenarios. Uh, when you even look at the odds uh, that you say would put Biden slightly ahead, what are the are, are the odds of a sweep still very small? So we're, we'd likely be talking about divided government. Yeah, you know, the Senate right now is about 50-50 if you looked at the current polling. Uh, our clients actually think that the Republicans are going to keep the Senate and there's a case to be getting there. A month ago, Kelly, the Democrats were poised to pick up six seats. They would add a 53-47 majority under that. 
And so as the president's numbers have improved, the biggest implication of that is that the Senate races have also tightened and the Republicans have gotten their footing in some states where they were struggling, like Montana and uh, in the Georgia seats. Uh, but they're still behind in Maine. They're still behind in North Carolina. Uh, and uh, and, uh, and so it's a, it's a real struggle. This looks a lot like 2000, where you had a very close presidential race and you had a very close uh, Senate, where on election night we didn't know either uh, which party controlled either chamber. So the, let's go kind of sector by sector here and yeah. presume maybe what you're, you've outlaid, which is let's say there's a Biden win, but a Republican Senate. You know, what are the names that are most vulnerable and also yeah. what would it what would it do to the stock market overall based on what elon was just telling us about his tax proposals yeah so first i have to say that the tax proposal that joe biden has put forward is very aggressive you look at the obama bill clinton george herbert walker bush tax increases they're just about three tenths of a percent of gdp this is one and a half percent of gdp tax increases for 2021 so it's a pretty big drag even if fiscal spending is attached to it and so if you get divided government it's very unlikely you're going to get any of those tax increases with Senator McConnell running the Senate. And, uh, but you get all the benefits of international trade. And I think one of the big implications of this election is that the market is reading uh, Biden as somebody who's going to uh, move in a diplomatic way in dealing with Europe and Europe dealing with China. And that's negative uh, for the dollar. And that's kind of helps uh, U.S. multinationals, which have large foreign source income. So you get all the benefits of that, which are loosening financial conditions and you get none of the tax increases. That's in the short run. But in the longer run, the market really wants more fiscal policy stimulus. And in that respect, they'd rather have an all-Democrat or all-Republican government, and you're just not going to get it. The, on July 31st, 2021, the debt ceiling needs to be raised, and so you see some austerity beginning to price in. You just asked me about what sectors would do well in divided government. Well, it's unlikely we're going to restructure the entire ACA in one way or another. Right. So managed care will do well. But defense may not do well if there's going to be austerity attached to it. That still means that the defense budget may have a harder time going higher. And Elon, that's an interesting point because if an all red or an all blue scenario gets you fiscal stimulus, well, maybe it's possible you get it under a purple scenario too. How strong do you sense the moves are kind of grassroots uh, already building towards austerity or or aren't they? I mean, is it possible that we could see uh, both parties come together again in this hypothetical scenario for more fiscal stimulus instead of for starting to pull things back? Well, Kelly, I think in the short term, what you're seeing is that the debate and the stalling of the COVID relief package does show that there is a limit to lawmakers' appetite for how much they're willing to spend, at least at this moment. Um, however, I would say that in the long term, one of the things the Biden campaign would argue is that even though their plan does call for increasing the corporate tax rate to 28 percent, they're also still investing $1.6 trillion in infrastructure and R&D. That's something that has support from both sides of the aisle, not to make it infrastructure weak again for anyone who follows D.C. politics. But that's something that, as Dan mentioned, you know, businesses have been calling for. And that's something that could, incre could increase the productive capacity of capital, of workers, and could stimulate the economy. So that's a part of his platform that is not really sort of baked into a lot of the distributional tables that we talk about when we look we talk about uh, taxes, but could be an important part of fiscal stimulus going forward. All right. And Dan, finally, before we go, I, I want to ask, so you mentioned kind of how important the intensity of COVID is in swing states. And if it continues to ebb, that could help Trump uh, with his reelection odds. What would be some names 
that could do well under that scenario, but not do poorly uh, if the more likely outcome, as you've described it, a, a Biden win, a Republican Congress, if that scenario comes to pass? Yeah, you know, I, I would argue that the, uh, the, the poor profits, the poor profit prisons, poor profit education student lenders are the ones that are really trading on a, on a Trump win. Hmm. But in addition, you would start to see uh, maybe financials catching a little bit bid. Uh, I understand interest rates are low here. There's a very strong correlation between financials, stocks, and uh, Trump's probability of winning. You can also see defense maybe get a pretty big rise here uh, if it looks like Trump's going to win, given his support for the defense budget. So there is a clear uh, set of winners that can come out of that. And given that the market has priced in some of this Biden victory already, that would lead to significant upside, very much like 2016 did uh, when Trump surprisingly won. Fascinating. Well, there's so much more here to go through, but I guess there's still some time to do that <laughs> if you'll come back. Dan no, Clifton, absolutely. thank you so much. Elon Moy, really appreciate it as well. Uh, counting us down to the election in November. Coming up, despite demand for travel continuing to be weak right now, JetBlue is adding routes to try to draw in travelers. We're going to speak exclusively with the CEO about this news, about the industry, furloughs, and much more in just a moment. Plus, from Goldman Sachs to J.P. Morgan to UBS and Oppenheimer, Wall Street is saying positive things about these markets despite the recent sell-off. We'll look at whether they could be right. And it's going to be a month of unconventional IPOs. We'll explain coming up on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. It's been an awful year for the airline industry. And despite low demand from consumers right now, JetBlue is announcing today that it'll add new routes in an effort to track travelers. Uh, JetBlue has seen some Wall Street love lately, up 20 percent in the past two months. Here with more in an exchange exclusive, our own Phil LeBeau is joined by the CEO of JetBlue, Robin Hayes. Phil? Thank you, Kelly. Robin, thank you for joining us from uh, JetBlue's headquarters there in New York. Uh, you guys announced last week that you're adding 24 new routes, primarily to leisure destinations, Florida, the Caribbean, Latin America. Uh, give me your sense of the overall market right now, especially as you look out over the next three to six months. Uh, hi, Phil. Uh, good to uh, speak to you again. Yep, we're right here in uh, New York. As you've heard me say before, uh, you know, we are very focused on the uh, domestic market. The international flying we have is uh, very close to home. We're very leisure focused. And so we continue to see opportunities as we start to see a little bit of recovery here. Um, I mean, we are still in very challenging times, but we have seen over the last few weeks uh, some small improvements in demand. And uh, I really think our focus in the domestic market, our nimbleness, means that we are able to move quickly uh, to take advantage of those. Our number one priority at the moment remains reducing cash burn. So where we see some flying, uh, we can add to our schedule to bring down our cash burn. Uh, we're well positioned to take advantage of that. Robin, where is your cash burn right now? 
Uh, we, we guided, uh, we guided uh, cash burn for the uh, uh, third quarter uh, between seven to nine million dollars uh, a day. And you're generally in that area. I know you, you have earnings coming up and there's a protocol for this, but nothing out of the ordinary. You're basically yeah. hitting what you expected. Yeah, I mean, we're doing very well on the cost side and, uh, you know, we've had a few good weeks on revenue. Uh, but as you know, Phil, it's very volatile. We saw improvements earlier in the summer. It went down. It went down again as the case counts increased. Now, we see, we see the revenue performance very correlated to what we're seeing in the country with case counts. So it's very hard to look out uh, more than a, a couple of uh, weeks ahead at the moment. Robin, earlier this summer, you guys agreed to the terms of a Treasury loan for $1.4 billion. Uh, but like other airlines, you guys said, look, we'll agree to these terms, but we haven't finalized whether or not we're going to take out that loan. The decision is by the end of this month for you and for other airlines. Have you decided whether or not you're going to take out that Treasury loan or are you going to forego that loan? So we've been uh, very active raising money in the uh, private markets, uh, Phil. Uh, we still have options to do that. And as you say, you know, we'll make a decision on the uh, government loan by the end of September. There is at least one analyst out there who believes that you're going to see an industry recovery by the end of next year, pre-pandemic levels. Uh, others are saying, wait a second, that's way too optimistic. What do you see when you look out, let's say, 12 to 18 months? Well, I do believe that uh, there is a lot of pent-up demand for leisure travel. There's a lot of uh, people who want to go and see friends and family. Uh, you know, I want to I get over to the UK to see some of my family. I haven't been able to do that. So we, we know that demand is there. We think that has the possibility to come back as uh, early as 2021. Uh, you know, really linked to people's comfort uh, around uh, flying. Um, I think a vaccine will help us tremendously. I think what's uncertain and what might take longer to come back is the business travel, because I think some forms of business travel uh, may be gone for a lot longer than just a, a year or so. You know, we've all got used to uh, this um, uh, video conferencing that we've been using. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, but I think people are going to be more thoughtful, companies are going to be more thoughtful about spending on business travel. And that's what could take longer to recover. Robin, it's Kelly. I appreciate you joining us. And I just wanted to ask about Hi, these routes that you're adding in Florida and the Caribbean. Uh, where are you seeing traffic and travel most pick up right now? What's your forecast of that? And where are the places that you might leave behind for good after the pandemic? Well, again, I, I don't know um, if we're ready to answer the question what we may give, uh, leave behind for good. What we do know is about 15 to 20 percent of our uh, Flying at JetBlue is business travel, and as I've said before, we think that's going to take a, a lot longer to come back. Uh, we've seen some international markets, uh, places like Cancun, uh, Aruba, Montego Bay, uh, develop very good protocols for testing, uh, for uh, sort of uh, creating a uh, welcoming experience for people whilst keeping it safe from a public health perspective. We're seeing very good demand there. You know, we're seeing a um, pretty healthy demand to uh, places like the Dominican Republic and, and Puerto Rico. So, you know, what we're, what we're seeing is where we see the demand, we'll, uh, we'll add the flying. And the other thing that we do at JetBlue is if a few days out we have individual flights that aren't covering the cost of cash, uh, we'll combine that with other flights that day. So we can get people to where they want to go, uh, but we also make sure that we focus on uh, continuing to execute uh, on the importance of uh, preserving our cash. Robin, the next uptick in business is expected to happen at Thanksgiving and then Christmas and New Year's. But we're hearing a number of people saying, wait a second, we think COVID-19 is going to have a resurgence as the weather gets cold. 
Are you worried that COVID-19 may really kill holiday traffic for you guys and the other airlines? Well, again, I think there is pent-up demand there, but we also know from experience that if case counts start to go up again, uh, that will have a, deterring, a, a deterrent effect on uh, travel. And, uh, you know, I think that's why as an industry we think the uh, uh, CARES Act extension is very important because that really, um, if we start to see things uh, heading the wrong direction again, is going to put uh, an industry that's already under a severe amount of pressure, under greater pressure. Uh, I think it's going to sort of bring back the spectra of furloughs on top of what's already been announced, and we all want to avoid that. You know, what the right thing to do at the moment is to uh, protect jobs and let's get through the winter and be here as an industry on the other side of that. Mr. Hayes, if I could just sneak in one more question, a little bit more of a local concern, you could call it, I guess, but you guys have a, a beautiful Terminal 5 out there at JFK, and you were one of the signatories uh, among business leaders concerned about the safety of New York City and the uh, quality of life issues, a letter you recently sent to Mayor de Blasio. Um, are you concerned that this city is uh, not as vibrant as it should be and that it may take quite some time uh, for a return and maybe a, a change of leadership or a change of policies, or, or what would it take to, to assuage your concerns? Yeah, I mean, um, we are uh, based right here in uh, New York City. Uh, we are so proud of being New York's hometown airline. Um, but, um, and we've had, we've had people coming to work through this pandemic, and they, uh, our crew members in the building here in uh, Long Island City and our systems operations center, they've had to come to work throughout. Our, all of our ground crews, our air crews, our pilots, our in-flight, they've had to come to work. So I feel a great sense of responsibility to make, uh, um, make getting to work uh, as safe as I can for, for our crew members. And, uh, you know, when we have our internal town hall meetings, uh, the um, safety is a number one issue that pops. In fact, I would say many of our people's minds, it's become more important than COVID itself. And so it's really important that as a, as a community in New York, as a team, uh, we give people a sense of comfort to, that New York is coming back, that restaurants are opening, that the subways are safe. I come to work on the train and the subway, uh, I feel safe, but you know, subway is such an important part of New York's infrastructure. We want to make sure that our people feel safe coming, coming so to work. Are you, are you saying your people feel more, the, their concern about their safety riding the subway or the bus to work is now a bigger concern than the coronavirus? Uh, I, I would say in New York, uh, when we do our internal uh, discussions about what will it take to get people to come back to work, um, the, the safety of, of getting to and from work yeah. uh, is, is top of people's mind. If, well, again, I appreciate you elaborating on that point. Uh, obviously a big concern around here. Robin Hayes and Phil LeBeau, thank you both so very much for joining us today. Thank you. Robin Hayes is the CEO of JetBlue Airlines. Still ahead, Jim Cramer called NVIDIA's deal to buy ARM an extraordinary deal, a game-set match in the semiconductor industry, and the street loves it. NVIDIA shares are up more than 4%, but it is raising some concerns. We'll dive into that and get you the latest. Plus, the clock has run out, ByteDance choosing Oracle as its U.S. partner. But it's not a buyout or an acquisition like the president wanted. So what's really going on here? We'll explore the structure of this ahead on The Exchange. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. 
But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's get you a check on these markets. It's a rally day here with the Dow of 320 points. So we're a little bit off the highs in the session, about 80 points off the highs, but still 1.1% gain. And the S&P and the NASDAQ are stronger than that. The S&P is up 1.2% or 42 points, 3383. The NASDAQ's up about 1.5%, up 158. But again, it was a little bit stronger this morning, so it's come off just a little bit. Still, every sector, as you can see behind me, is in the green. Interestingly enough, though, our leadership is very different today. Real estate is up 2.2%. That's your top sector. Financials are up 2%. Healthcare up 1.6%. Obviously a big deal in that space. And in the bottom uh, of the, at the bottom of the board, consumer discretionary and communication services taking a bit of a breather. Let's check on shares of NVIDIA after it agreed to buy SoftBank's arm holdings in a $40 billion deal today. NVIDIA shares are up 4.5%. This has huge reverberations across the whole semiconductor industry. Josh Lipton joins us now with some details on this deal for us. Josh? So, Kelly, it's the biggest chip deal ever. NVIDIA buying SoftBank's arm for $40 billion. Regulatory approval may take about 18 months here, according to the companies. NVIDIA, best known right now as the world's largest graphics chip maker. But with this deal, NVIDIA becomes a player in the much bigger CPU market, too. That's the primary brain in most computing devices. ARM's technology is everywhere, underpinning all sorts of products, from smartphones to tablets to PCs. There are potential risks for this deal. Though, as one analyst puts it, many of ARM's customers will be up in arms, unhappy that another chip company is buying this asset. And what about regulatory approval? CEO Jensen Wong sounding confident on CNBC. This transaction, because the two of us are complementary, it is not a it's not an industry consolidation, meaning uh, meaning two companies, two DRAM companies buying each other. It's nothing like that. Now, working in NVIDIA's favor here, perhaps, these are two very uh, different business models. NVIDIA, of course, makes chips, ARM licenses, IP. Kelly, back to you. Josh, thank you very much. Again, those NVIDIA shares up 4.5%. They've more than doubled this year. Meanwhile, the future of TikTok in the U.S. has been the dramatic story heating up since July. Early that month, remember, Secretary of State Pompeo said they were, quote, looking at banning the app. Not long after that, the president jumped in saying he would ban TikTok in the U.S. before changing his tune and saying he would allow instead an American company to acquire it. Now, that led to the flurry of interest we've seen in buying TikTok's U.S. operations. Bids from a Microsoft Walmart partnership as well as Oracle. Well, two months later, we now have a winner, but don't call it a buyout or a takeover. Julia Borson is here with the very latest for us. Julia? 
Well, ByteDance has chosen Oracle as a, quote, trusted technology partner as part of TikTok's corporate restructuring. That's the language being used. Oracle confirming what Secretary Mnuchin said on CNBC this morning, that his proposal for TikTok was received over the weekend. And the administration will review it this week and have technical discussions with Oracle ahead of the September 20th deadline. Now, this is not the sale of TikTok's U.S. assets, but rather Oracle would be taking a significant minority stake in TikTok and become TikTok's cloud provider. Oracle would take responsibility for data, privacy, and security issues as part of a restructuring that ByteDance had actually been pursuing to comply with CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, and they've been working on that for months now. Now, sources point to Oracle's ties to the Trump administration. CEO Safford Katz donated over $130,000 to the Trump campaign this year, and Oracle chairman and founder Larry Ellison hosted a fundraiser for the president earlier this year as well. Now, with things still fluid on this deal, there could be other players participating. Walmart tells us it continues to have an interest in a TikTok investment and is continuing discussions with ByteDance. So guys, certainly a lot to watch and we'll see how things firm up in the next few days. Kelly? Yeah. Julia, thank you and stay right there. Let's also bring in Joanna Stern. She's a senior personal technology columnist at the Wall Street Journal and a CNBC contributor. Joanna, it's good to have you. And I mean, my my main source, I think, of confusion is about the structure of this. So Oracle is more than a partner. I mean, they have a minority stake. Presumably they will benefit financially. I don't know how or whether this will solve all of the questions around vetting TikTok's algorithms and things like do we do we know those details yet? We don't seem to know those details yet. I mean, I keep thinking of Oracle as a babysitter here. This is the U.S. babysitter for ByteDance. And as Joya just detailed, I think a lot of this is going to come down to the housing of data, the security of the data, and privacy. How can Oracle use its infrastructure in the U.S., its infrastructure in a U.S.-based company to make sure our American user data is safer than what we had all sort of feared that would be in the hands of, of, a, of a Chinese company? Yeah, I like the babysitter analogy, but again, you, you could also argue, well, a babysitter doesn't do much. I mean, you make sure the kids are alive, but, you know, on top of that, the it parents... It depends on the age of the kid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The parents are still the, the case parents. maybe here, honestly. Right. So here, here's a line from Derek Scissors over at AEI that I thought was interesting. He said, you know, let's remember that this all started with a legitimate inquiry into the privacy and national security implications of TikTok's gathering of information on Americans. So, Joanna, his point is, now we fast forward, that has not ever really been addressed. Now Oracle is kind of just the babysitter. Um, again, I, I don't want to downplay. I mean, from China's point of view, this may be way too heavy-handed, but have those and are those concerns really being addressed here? I mean, I think the biggest question and the biggest question throughout this all, whole thing has been around the algorithm. The A word is the biggest deal, I think, here. Yes, where our data lives is extremely important. But that algorithm, which seems to be TikTok's secret sauce to getting us to stay on that app for so many hours, I have written about this. This app is one of the most addicting things I've ever had on my phone. It is all with that algorithm behind it. So the content that is fed through that, that is, that's the algorithm. So if that's not in the hands of a U.S. company and that's still in the hands of ByteDance, there are a lot of big question marks around that. Julia? 
Well, I think it's really interesting, though, that what we're talking about right now, the idea of a restructuring, having a U.S. company be responsible for the data, the data meaning the data on U.S. consumers, which is what they did not want to have exported back to China. Everything we're talking about there is very similar to what was first pursued when there were CFIUS concerns. So there were CFIUS concerns. They started talking about a restructuring. Then the president got involved. This escalated. It became something that was on headlines in every newspaper. And now we went from conversations about a full-blown sale of the company to now this idea that it's a minority stake. So I think that we're sort of going back to where things were earlier this year before the president got involved. And the big difference being that there would be a U.S. company, in, in fact, U.S. company with ties to the president, Oracle, that would be the one that would be managing that data and ensuring that it's not exported back to China. So I think it's just interesting to note the sort of the cycle here. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I would mm -hmm. point out is this still isn't done yet. And we could ha see Walmart come in and see them also be one of the other players that could own a piece of this company. Yeah. And I guess my final question for now, Joanna, with that being said, I mean, this is not the end of the story yet. But under this arrangement, who's the authority that gets to decide? So if there's a dispute between Oracle and and TikTok U.S. over an algorithm practice, a data collection practice. What, you know, does if Oracle's a minority partner, it doesn't sound like they would have the last say. Does the, are they referring this matter to the U.S. government? Are, are they negotiating with U.S. ByteDance and with China? I, I don't understand kind of who calls the shots. I don't think we do understand or know the answers to a lot of those questions yet. And I think that's really illustrative of what this messy U.S.-China partnership or or divisions of walls is going to be for the next number of years ahead. Where are the things that are in our control and where are the things that are in theirs? And especially as these companies create new types of deals, what does that mean for the end product? Right. Right. Absolutely. All right. Thank you both. Appreciate it for now. Julia Sturd, <laughs> Joanna Sturd and Julia That's my Borston. sister's name. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, let's give her our good best. Good to see you guys. <laughs> let's get to Sue Herrera now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. As President Trump heads to California to review the damage from enormous wildfires raging along the West Coast, take a look at this. This is dramatic time-lapse video showing clouds of smoke rolling across a lake in the state as a fire spreads across that area. At least 35 are dead and thousands of homes have been destroyed so far in the West. A new rule of six is going into effect in the UK today as COVID cases turn higher. Social gatherings of more than six people are now banned. The new regulation replaces a more complicated collection of rules that many found confusing. And scientists have discovered a chemical, phosphine, in the atmosphere of Venus, and they think it could only have come and be produced by something that is alive. The search for potential microbes will now intensify on a planet that has long been ignored due to its very toxic atmosphere. That's a fascinating story. You are up to date, Kel. I'll send it back to you. There was like a men are from Mars, women are from Venus thing I could have done there, but it felt too, <laughs> you know, not anymore. You know, Not anymore, no. <laughs> All right, Sue, thank you very much. We'll see you next hour. You got it. Coming up, could the retreat we've seen this month in stocks be purely technical and a much-needed sentiment adjustment, or is there more at work here? We'll explore that, tell you what the latest uh, thinking is. Plus, with the slew of IPOs this month, comes a flurry of experimentation and unique approaches for 2020. We'll look at why this September is the month of unconventional IPOs. We're back in two.
Welcome back. The Nasdaq dropping more than 5% in the past two weeks as momentum stocks have led the pullback. While the move isn't accompanied by the likes of credit stress or earnings forecast cuts, could there be more pain ahead? Mike Santoli is here with more on that. Mike. Yeah, Kelly, it really comes down to just uh, how much in the way of those excesses that were built up in the rally in August really need to be given back, because that really is the process underway. And I think it starts with why we call a correction a correction. It's because when market prices get too far away from an underlying trend, it's a course correction back in the direction of the longer term trend. And so some of the hallmarks of a correction are here, which is the strongest stocks through August, the ones that had really gotten most extreme to the upside, the Apples, the Teslas, DocuSigns, have actually come down the most. And those economically cyclical areas like industrials, like consumer discretionary, have actually held up relatively better. And you mentioned, you know, no signs of credit trust. That implies that this decline is really not about new fears about the path uh, of the economy or, or the fate of the recovery. It really seems to be mostly uh, a technical and sentiment adjustment for now. Now, how far can it go? We can obviously uh, continue to go down from here if, in fact, uh, it's deemed that there are not really ready buyers at prices that are only three weeks old. I think that's the other thing to consider. NASDAQ down about 11 percent, high to low. It only brought it back a few weeks. Apple was at these prices in August 11th, even after going down 20 percent from the highs. I mean, Mike, you, you know as well as anyone as a Barron's guy, don't you think that the end of the, the pullback will be marked by some kind of, you know, soul searching about what's happened with retail investing this year and and big front page headline stories about, you know, the money that people lost. Or the, you know, it, it doesn't feel like we need a, a moment more like more cathartic like that first. Right. You'd, you'd want to see people really rethinking the underpinnings of this market right. and deciding that there had to be some kind of reckoning. I think ideally, yes. But uh, not all market, not all pullbacks kind of develop into that uh, sort of real flush at the lows or really have to get oversold before they rebound. But, yeah, that would be the, the more ideal setup, to be honest with you, because it seems to me just so far anyway, a lot of people are pretty satisfied to see the high flyers come in a little bit. Yeah. They feel like they're smart. They thought things were overdone to the upside. So, yes, if you really do need a kind of a comeuppance out there for, for most popular sentiment, maybe that's what's required. I'm just not convinced that that's really uh, what you always get in these uh, in these episodes. Yeah, that's fair enough. Those are usually more the big ones. Michael, thank you. All Mike right. Santoli. And firms on the street are staying bullish, releasing several calls ahead of today's open. Goldman, for example, says it remains optimistic about the path of U.S. equities over the next few months. Oppenheimer says any expectations that beaten down tech stocks will remain under pressure seem exaggerated. UBS calls the recent pullback an opportunity for investors to enter the markets at better levels. And the bulls are certainly back today. But can they keep charging until Election Day? For more, let's bring in Allie McCartney. She's managing director at UBS Private Wealth Management. And Jamie Cox is a managing partner at Harris Financial Group. Jamie, I saw you chuckling there. What's running across your mind as we uh, rattle off these, these market calls? Yeah, I, I think that, Kelly, we're, we're in a situation where, you know, we've talked about growth as defensive plays. We've talked about growth in all these different ways. And we've talked about growth versus value. And, and really, all that really is permeating all the way through this is that there's a digital divide that has broken in, in, in between these stocks. So any stock that has or any company that has a digital presence or has something that makes them a little bit more attractive on the digital side, they're doing quite well. And, it, and, I, and I think what the other thing we have to watch with these growth stocks is that we paid so much attention to the largest ones that we forget about the smaller companies. I mean, there's so much going on in immunotherapeutics and other places that are not traditional tech stocks that we need to really be focusing on more than just the Teslas of the world or the Apples of the world right. or some of these larger caps, because that's, that's really where the action has been over the last couple of days. 
But if investors really want to make money in tech, they need to look below the surface a little bit and see some of these companies that are headquartered maybe outside the U.S. in, in Southeast Asia, emerging markets. That's where the action is going to be going forward. And I feel like as we look at big themes that emerge from this COVID crisis, you're going to look out, look back maybe a couple of years from now and say, my goodness, look at the trends in global health, look at the hmm. trends in pharmaceuticals and, and say that was the innovation wave that was sparked during this pandemic. So, Ali, it sounds to me like Jamie would would say to people there is a digital divide for a reason and you want to be on the right side of it. So, you know, maybe those if you have those valuation concerns or so forth, you know, you need to kind of keep that longer term story in mind. Where where do you come down? I mean, do you think this market is still too overextended? I think that uh, Jamie's comments were were spot on and they demonstrate the the divide that has existed in the tale of two cities. And the fact is that there have been some companies doing extraordinarily well and some, you know, struggling on a day to day basis. But I think Mike's points were also right on, which is saying that, you know, as a former head of a derivatives desk, the amount of premium and how offsides all of these desks were exacerbated the sell down, just like we've seen exacerbation uh, on the way up. So I think, look, you have a NASDAQ that, as we said, was down about 11% for highs, S&P close to 7%. We've got this pullback that people are waiting for. There are other stocks besides tech stocks, and they will continue to do extraordinarily well. We have, since August, you've seen, you've started to see that rotation into value. You've seen materials, industrials, consumer discretionary. Mid-caps are starting to get back as people take risk on. Mm -hmm. The two things we're going to continue to drive this market up are confidence. And I think confidence is probably largely tied to some of the positive news we got today on the vaccine front. Sure. And the second is a pickup in long-term rates. And I think that the Fed is going to help us a little bit with that in terms of what it's going to do with asset purchases on Wednesday. Yeah. So if we get two things, we continue to see upside to market. And yeah, you can own a little Apple, you can buy a little Tesla, but I think you really have to think, as everybody's been saying today, not about what the technical implications of the premium spent in the last few weeks or months are, but what does yeah. the mid to long-term market look like? And you have no alternative. The Fed has given us no alternative to investing in risk assets. We are pricing, the markets are telling us that there is no expectation of rates above zero until 2025. Yep, 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 we got to go. All right, thank you both, Ali McCartney, Jamie Cox, for your thoughts on this market today. Coming up with concerts and live events basically on hold due to COVID, venues are starting to get creative about putting on shows. We're going to look at the path forward for concerts next, and let's take a look at the Dow 30 heat map, shall we? The index up 417 at the highs today, only three names are in the red right now, and the leadership includes Amex, United Health, Visa, and Boeing. We're back in two. Welcome back in small towns and big cities. Coronavirus has closed down concerts, and the ways September 11th has changed air travel and security, this pandemic may forever change the way we attend live events. Our Contessa Brewer is here to explain. When concerts resume, they may be less shoulder to shoulder and more bumper to bumper. We're seeing various forms of social distancing, reduced capacity shows. Drive-ins have been used in a lot of markets because we're in the summertime. And we'll continue to do that over the course of this year. Live Nation produces some of the biggest concerts in the world. 
It handles much of the entertainment for Caesars, which just hosted its first concert since coronavirus, outdoors at Harrah's Atlantic City. But Las Vegas and its economy depend on large crowds indoors, and it's trying to unveil a new stadium. Nevada's Coronavirus Task Force is working hard, figuring out how a concert or sporting event could take place safely. We have to create effectively a digital vaccine before we have the actual vaccine. And what I mean by that is to have a series of, of digital uh, layers of protection. Clear uses biometric scanners for security in airports and stadiums and now is offering screening to assess health as well. We may all start carrying a kind of health passport that declares we tested negative for infection or that we've been vaccinated. Perhaps your health passport will be uploaded to Ticketmaster for entry to an event. Wearables like rings or bracelets can monitor your health before and during a concert, and digital contact tracing apps can alert other concert goers near you if you test positive shortly after a concert. Extra steps to ensure safety for those who live for live music. I think people like the energy, the feeling, the connection of being together in a full building for their favorite artist. I don't think anything replaces that. Clearly there's a yearning here. Live Nation says rather than opt for a refund, 86% of its customers chose to hang on to their tickets waiting for the show to go on. I mean, Contessa, Kelly. I listen, I love Garth Brooks. Let's take him as the example, okay? He was supposed to be the opener for the new Allegiant Stadium in Vegas. But I, I, would I go through all that trouble now to see him? I guess so. But man, it just makes what was already becoming a, a very time, you know, an event that takes a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of hassle, just even that much more of an effort. But think about how Las Vegas economy depends on getting these large crowds together, Kelly. Yeah. And if they can figure it out for concerts, they can figure it out for conventions, too. Right, which is vital, as you said, to their entire uh, to their entire flourishing. Contessa, thank you very, very much. Contessa Brewer with a look at what the future of concerts might look like. Still ahead this year, September doesn't just mean the start of fall. It also brings a slew of IPOs, and this time with an experimental twist. We're going to look at what investors need to know next. And remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in a couple. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.